I was like, I should listen with a critical ear and, and like how these people talk about their books. So I felt like I did homework last night. So I'm like ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 122. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Readers, I'd love to share an iTunes review from listener Pete Green 1000 He says, this podcast is a delight and talks to different people with a variety of reading preferences. So whether you want to stay in your lane or be adventurous, you will find something here. I have found so many treasured books through listening to the podcast. If I do not resonate with a guest, at least I will get a clear idea of what not to read. And I will often think of someone I know who would enjoy the books discussed, which is great for gift ideas. It is a great boost to my day when I realize I have a new What Should I Read Next episode waiting for me. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for that, Pete Green 1000. Reviews on iTunes help our show reach new listeners. In other words, it's our podcasting love language. To leave your own review, visit whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash iTunes. You might hear it someday on the show. Readers, you might recognize today's guest if you are a reality TV buff, because Scott Flannery won season 29 of The Amazing Race. But he also happens to be a huge book nerd, and that's what we get to talk about today. Scott says his home-based genre used to be chick lit, but after recently discovering a new favorite niche genre, he's ready to travel even further in his bookish journey. Today, I get to chat with Scott about how book clubs can help you connect deeply with your community, book-to-stage adaptations, childhood favorite heroines, and yes, I asked some of the questions you reality TV fans have been dying to hear answers to, like how does an introvert find time to recharge during a hectic filming schedule? It's a lot of fun. Let's get to it. Scott, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I'm so excited to talk to you. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I like to start our episodes by asking guests about their background as a reader. I like to think that I um, am not too exciting, actually, because I actually graduated from Harvard University back in 2010. And when I was in my master's program, we had to read so much because we had to uh, constantly be writing thesis papers and analyzing data about different topics. And it's just information overload to spend your Saturdays in the library for, I guess, academia. And then because I associated reading with work, I didn't see it as a way to have fun in my off time. So it wasn't until I, later in life that I started picking up books, which is fairly interesting. When I reflect back on when I was younger, I always begged my mom and dad to take me to the library. And I would always want to read about, this might be telling about my forthcoming favorite books, but Amelia Bedelia and Ramona Quimby and <laughs> those heroines. <laughs> I actually loved Pippi Longstocking so much. I wrote her a letter when I think I was five or six. And I told her why I loved her because she was so creative and adventurous. And I did not know at the time, but I got a letter back from her and she said, thank you. I love you too. And it was my brother who wrote <laughs> it to me. <laughs> Tell me those letters still exist somewhere. I wish, I truly wish they did, but they do not. <laughs> So it sounds like after being scarred by education, as so many readers are, you are returning to your childhood roots. I am. Yep, okay. I am. I'm rediscovering my love for reading. What did you study in school? Uh, for undergrad, I was a business major. But when I went to grad school, I studied higher education. So really, it's, it's uh, how to manage a university or how to use student development theories to reach uh, various outcomes for college students. And what do you do now? Are you drawing on that education? I am. I uh, worked in different universities for about 10 years, uh, but most recently moved over to kind of corporate America where I recruit uh, college students into accounting firms. And now I work with accounting professionals full time. In the Seattle area. That's right. I'm new to Seattle and I love it. And what's great about the weather is because it is a little dreary, I get to read a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way to look at the bright side. So how's your reading life been? What's it been like? My reading life really took off in Los Angeles about two to three years ago. In Los Angeles, it's very hard to see your friends because there's that traffic that everyone knows about. There's so many things to do. You're just bombarded with activity and media consumption. And sometimes you just forget to really develop your relationships. And one way I started to combat that was to reach out to my five best friends in Los Angeles I knew we all liked to read on the, you know, offhand. And I said, why don't we start book club? We have similar interests. We all want to read more and we want to see each other with regularity. And what's exciting is they all agreed. And for the last two-ish years I was in Los Angeles, we met uh, every four to six weeks. We changed genres. We explored different topics. We're not one of those book clubs who got together and just drank wine <laughs> and just talked. <laughs> we actually discussed the book and uh, we each contributed a dish that related to the book some way. So it was very creative and exciting. And you were asking about my reading life in Seattle. And I was thinking, what better way to meet new friends than start another book club? And so my first meeting with my new book club is next week. Oh, that's fantastic. How did you find your new book clubbers? So I'm trying to get more involved in the gay community here because it's not something that I was able to do in Los Angeles. 
I just have been hanging out with this group of guys who were all reading The Velvet Rage right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a book about growing up gay in a straight person's world, which essentially is this idea that because it's more difficult for us to see role models in um, leadership positions or in healthy relationships or what have you, um, sometimes our um, personal growth, for lack of better words, is stunted or it just takes a little bit longer. And so it's evaluating how that might look in your life if that's present and some ideas on, on how to continue developing as an adult. So having seen the book club work in LA, you knew that if you find your community, that's a good way to get to know them better. Is that right? I would agree. What's interesting is all of us actually met at a CrossFit gym. My friends in, in CrossFit, you wouldn't think would want to read. And that's what made it even more exciting is we had that shared commonality on the physical side, but also had the intellectual piece as well. I love that you're dismantling all the stereotypes. <laughs> trying, trying. How did you all choose your books for your book club? I'd love to hear how you chose, because that's a big source of debate in many clubs, and also what some of your favorites were that you read together. Certainly. I'll refrain from telling you my three favorites and one hated because all four <laughs> came from the club. <laughs> Thank you. You know how this works. But I'll say that when I started it, I volunteered to have the first book. And I said, let's all explore everyone's favorite book to start. So that will give us five solid books. And we can explain why we loved it when we meet. And that will start our discussion. So the first book is actually one of my upcoming favorites. So I will keep that a secret for now. But um, another one that I really loved was Unbroken. Mm -hmm. Because it's that story of that man who just persevered through so many I cannot fathom how this guy was stranded at sea, prisoner of war, and then he overcomes all odds in concentration camps to survive and come back and live a healthy life in the United States. I, just someone's life like that and then rooting it in truth, I mean, it was all true, is fascinating to me. It opened my eyes up to literature can take us way outside of the general fiction that I think I'm exposed to. I'll say we really stretched our reading muscles and read something called Wolf Song. I don't know this. I was so happy to say this tale because I thought you might not. You are the book whisperer. I'm like, I'm going to find something (laughs) 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 that you might not have read. Uh, Once we got through all of our favorite books, we all started deciding on taking a leap of faith and saying, let's try different genres. And this month, we uh, one of my friends chose Wolf Song. And it's essentially a young adult, adult cusp fantasy where a boy is discovering that he comes from a family lineage of folks who can turn into wolves. But it's only when he is so stirred from emotion that there's a reason to become that wolf. Uh, so I guess extreme hate, extreme love. Mm-hmm. I tried so hard to really get into that because I was a fan of the Twilight series. I've never read <laughs> so, those. Oh, you haven't? Uh-uh. Oh my goodness. I'm I sure, mean, that's uh, not like a principal position or anything. I just have never read those. The first Twilight book is, is the best, if, if you want to just get a taste. But they have this idea of humans or human-like folks turning into wolves and vampires. So I thought I, I could at least bond with a wolf song because I've been exposed to it and liked it. But I don't think the structure of that fantasy was for me. Scott, when you're picking books for yourself, not for book club, mm-hmm. when you're not reading the books that your friends are choosing for you, how do you decide what to read next? What kinds of things do you like to read? I really like to read books that are relevant to my life at the moment or will take me somewhere where I want to go. So, for example, um, I like to eat paleo, which, funny enough, is how I found your podcast. Really? My, oh, was yeah. it through Mel? 
It is. Yes. I love her. She is my favorite cookbook author. And I had the wonderful fortune of meeting her in real life. Fangirled so hard. Bless her. <laughs> There's a paleo convention in Austin, Texas every year. Of course year. there is. It's called Paleo FX. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I actually went <laughs> because she would be there. <laughs> that seems I like paid. a perfectly reasonable reason to me. Well, I hope you're you. listening, Mel. I know. I'm going to have to email her. I email her about once or twice a year just to remind her how much she's changed my life with her cookbooks and how I enjoy reading her blogs about her reading adventures. Um, we have different reading tastes, but I still appreciate her uh, affinity for Jane Eyre very much. I was going to say, I'm saying this kindly with a smile on my face, but are you saying you haven't read Jane Eyre 174 times? <laughs> Spoiler alert, I, I got the audiobook and got halfway through and was so exhausted. <laughs> was it Thandie Newton's? No, it wasn't. It was... Because um, I was thinking if Thandie Newton can't do it for you, you're in trouble. No, maybe I should switch over for the second half. But no, I tried, and, and I get the heft and the glory found within the text, but I needed a break, so I'm only halfway through. Uh, but so, no, I found your, your blog through here, and so I have listened to many episodes and do get a couple of recommendations from your site, but also heavily influenced by Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> they talk about some great books in Entertainment Weekly. They do. I love that it's not really a magazine focused on literature or the stage, which are two, my two favorite mm -hmm. art forms. But when they do, they're really good. They really give you a solid review or solid recommendations for what might be enjoyable. What's fascinating to me is I'm learning terminology as I go. And something I learned from you maybe a month or so ago was the term upmarket. And I Googled it and I, I understand <laughs> where that falls in the scope of literature to a degree. And I thought, oh my gosh, looking at my three favorites, I am such the target audience for the upmarket. <laughs> publisher. And I and I kind of got a little bashful knowing I was going to speak to you because so many of your wonderful reader guests are just so well read and not upmarket that I went, well, I hope there's someone who can relate to me. <laughs> are you kidding? We like to talk to all kinds of readers. So do you see yourself in that description? Like, does that categorize a whole lot of books on your shelves? Yes. If I had to define myself, I would say I would hold that that flag high because I am that person who wants to discuss the book with others. Here's the big thing. I need the book to have a powerful ending. I want to be talking about it, thinking about it, reflecting on it, loving it so much. I want to buy two copies of it for people. It's interesting because I was I was discussing saying this sentiment to you with my boyfriend and he goes, well, be nice about it. No author <laughs> owes you anything. And I go, I know authors don't owe me anything, but the books that I really gravitate towards and want to perpetuate in the world of literature are those that just slam dunk that ending after a nice ride. And it just leaves you speechless. You know, Mel and I talked about the importance of the endings. You did. That's right. And I'm actually excited to start Sleeping Giants, which you recommended to her. I just bought it actually yesterday. <laughs> that sounds like a good, like cozy in Seattle kind of rainy day book. I would agree. And expands me into sci-fi as well. So if you're getting book recommendations from Entertainment Weekly, does that mean that you'd like to read a lot of new fiction? 
I do. It's interesting. I'll get a list in my to read pile, which uh, is is figurative because it's really a list on my Goodreads. It keeps keeps getting longer, and then I'm almost like a dog with a squirrel. Like, oh, there's a new one. And so, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's me. It just depends on timing. <laughs> right when I'm done with something, the first one to come off of hold from the library is the next one I read, which is usually newer. And yet, you say that you also try to read one classic or a book you should have read in high school every year or so. That's right. In high school, I think like most folks did not enjoy my English classes because they required us to read some of the classics. And now that I feel like I'm older and can understand why they're classics and why they're important for our society and just for literature in general, I I kind of get a thrill out of it. Last year's classic was 1984. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed it, actually. I love the idea of Big Brother, which I guess I'm a fan of the show Big Brother, so I was able to relate to that. <laughs> uh, and I liked this idea of what George Orwell thought the future might look like. And I don't think we're far from that. I think elements of that can certainly come into play, if not some of them already coming into play. Jane Eyre was the year before, so that shows you how long I've waited to read the second half. I'm getting there. Um, and this year, I think I'm targeting Siddhartha because I'm very much into this idea that life is about energy, being mindful, being present, thinking about why we're here. I've, I've heard that that's somewhat of the message of that book, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm impressed. I have not read that one. <laughs> I can't say it's on my reading list. I mean, maybe one day, but it's not the next hundred. I, <laughs> I would understand. I actually take a few notes from your suggested reading lists and it falls into the uh, short book category. So it kind of knocks out two categories there. I think it's uh, my emotional feelings about Siddhartha. Like I was totally picturing an enormous paperback in my mind, mm -hmm. white with red words for some reason. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that some like psychoanalyst could delve into that one. Tell me what <laughs> all that means. <laughs> I love that. I love that you have this image of books. I think we all do. Like maybe War and Peace is the... Well, my parents had a copy of that, so I can picture it. It's huge and blue. <laughs> Scott, when do you get all this reading done? So you just moved to town, you have a book club, you eat paleo, you do CrossFit. Like none of those are not time consuming. And you travel a lot, don't you? Like key thing I know about you, and I think a lot of people know about you, is you won The Amazing Race. So I'm assuming that you have to do a lot of this reading on the road. Absolutely. And oh, Amazing Ray's dream of a lifetime. I love reality TV. Some of my early book choices were informed by reality TV, including the... Wait, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's a book from about Survivor for the first two seasons. So, of course, I devoured those in about two seconds. Um, and then there's also another book about reality TV, and it will come to me when I'm speaking to you. But I just thought, oh, right. You can read about any subject you want. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew there was a whole subsection of just reality TV books? Uh, oh, it was called As Seen on TV, as a matter of fact. Perfect. When I travel is when I like to read because the travel bug certainly did not stop biting me after The Amazing Race. It, in fact, bit harder because I realized just how easy it is to get around the world and explore and meet different people, learn new cultures, and, and put yourself out there to, to gain more perspective. And so when I travel, whether it's on the bus to work, so only 20, 30 minutes a morning, or if it's on an airplane uh, to recruit a student uh, from the East Coast or even going travels abroad, that's when I enjoy reading the most because I consider myself an outgoing introvert. 
Mm-hmm. I uh, am very much a person who will give you my all in a setting. I love public speaking. I love networking. Um, I love meeting people one-on-one. But when I'm done with that activity, I'm completely zapped. I go home, curl up on the couch, and it's Netflix or my current book that are battling for my attention. But I'm being very quiet. Do you read differently when you're on the road or on an airplane than you would if you were at home? I think I read with more intention when I'm on the road. I think I actually face distractions of other media consumption when I'm at home, which um, is fascinating to me because I love reading, but I equally love rich stories told through television. Mm -hmm. And so if I read at quote unquote home, I actually have to leave and go to a coffee shop or a library. So I don't have the other distractions uh, and to get the reading done, which is funny because I'm enjoying the book, but that's my personality. Did your experience on The Amazing Race specifically, but also generally like the places you've been to on your own travels, do they influence what you read? Like, do you find yourself looking for books about certain regions or certain people groups or certain kinds of adventures? It has informed my reading to a smaller degree. The most recent books I've read have referenced Los Angeles or Seattle. And so it's very fun to get the references that these characters are are going through either a street or a restaurant mm-hmm. or what have you. And so I'm excited to find a book that maybe explores one of the cities I experienced on The Amazing Race. I haven't yet. A bigger perspective is the race exposed me to, as I mentioned, different cultures and experiences. And I want that to parlay into my reading. I want to expand my genre interests. I guess just my overall consumption of different types of genres. I guess I'm saying the same thing because I feel like (laughs) I'm just kind of stuck in popular yet not commercial so upmarket, I guess. And I want to have that confidence that I can branch out and find maybe an obscure title or author and very much enjoy that work as well. I just don't know what I don't know, I guess. Scott, I'm surprised to hear that you're an outgoing introvert only because something like The Amazing Race sounds so daunting. Is there a lot of downtime that we don't see on the show? I'm wondering how someone who likes to read to recharge could recharge in that kind of environment. And how long were you all gone? How long is the filming process? The actual race is just over three weeks. Okay. And you're four weeks away from home. I have such an interest in playing either The Amazing Race Survivor or Big Brother that I actually said in all of my casting interviews that the number one challenge would be my need to recharge alone. And on a show such as Big Brother, where your where your life is twenty four seven shown to the United States mm-hmm. or really the world for up to three months, that gave me anxiety. But it's interesting because I was willing to forego this need to recharge for this experience of playing a strategic reality show game, which is just something I'm so interested in. And luckily for the Amazing Race, between episodes we are sequestered at hotels, and because we were partnered with strangers as opposed to a loved one like traditional seasons. Mm -hmm. We got our own hotel rooms. And so it was so nice that, spoiler alert, I got to recharge after every episode, which was so nice. But the episodes, you never knew when they would end. Some of them would take three days to film. Some Mm -hmm. of them would take 12 hours to film. So those longer uh, filming days, such as the three-day long episode, certainly I was at my my wit's end and I think it, it Translates on screen a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I 
was assuming based on your show experience that it would be much easier for an extrovert to survive. And maybe that is true, actually, but I assumed you were one. I just was trying to not say what I assumed about you, Scott. Do you <laughs> find from being on the show that people do make assumptions about the kind of person you are that are way off base? Oh, 100%. I give a lot of speeches to college students about career readiness and personal branding. One thing I talk about is know yourself in terms of extroversion, introversion, because it impacts the way you think, interact with others, and present yourself, really. And I always surprise everybody when I say I'm an introvert, because I think a lot of people associate introversion with shyness. And that's not the case, right? Introversion is the way you re you recharge your battery rather than the way you interact with others. I even read Quiet, um, Susan Cain's mm -hmm. book. It's so good. And it's so good. And I'm, I'm reading it going, yes, that's me. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's me. <laughs> in fact, she I think she coined the term ambivert, which is directly in the middle of extrovert, introvert. And for a moment, I thought that was me. But when you really boil it down to recharging the batteries, it's me being alone away from everyone. And so I think it's important that when people assume you are one thing, that if it makes sense, you can say gently, you're actually incorrect. And maybe that's exciting to shatter that stereotype. What else do people get wrong because of the show? Uh, <laughs> if folks were able to watch the full season, they'll see that I used a lot of strategy to perhaps backstab or <laughs> <laughs> or uh, just use rules of the game against other teams. I think what people fail to realize if you're a casual viewer of a show like that is it's a reality for the person actually on the show. I had a one in 11 shot of winning half a million dollars and it was my lifelong dream to play a strategic reality show like that. And I wasn't going to waste it by hoping I came across fine on TV. I think there is a line, you know, I don't want to be extremely abrasive and rude and a terrible person. You can be very nice, but also use the concept of the game to advance yourself further in the competition. And so because I essentially had the power of kicking someone off the show at one point. Oh, I haven't gotten to that episode yet. It's Oh, don't worry. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> it, the edit was very nice to me. It, it uh, They didn't show it as so devilish, but, but I certainly was the uh, quote unquote mastermind behind that. Do you think people watching tend to forget about the fact that there's strategy to it the same way there is to like Monopoly or Othello? I absolutely do. It's interesting to be on the other side, meaning having experienced it real life, and then almost a year later see it on TV and the public is consuming it live. You have to hearken back to, oh, this is what I was feeling 11, 12 months ago. So that makes sense that I was acting that way. There's almost a year gap between when you recorded it and when it aired? Yes, it's not supposed to be. It's traditionally only three to four months from when a show like that uh, films to when it airs. But we had the, the luck of CBS choosing to shelve our season for a period of time. So we had to wait longer. Yeah. I can't tell if you're using luck sarcastically or not. <laughs> Let's just say it was very difficult to know I won and then not even say why I was gone for five weeks for my personal life for another nine months. It was very hard. Wait, you hard. couldn't explain why you were gone, like to work? No, I used the excuse I was going abroad for volunteer work, which is something I really do. Wow. I thought you'd just have to keep under wraps that you won, which seemed really hard to me. <laughs> that was hard because imagine, <laughs> imagine your mom and dad who are super fans of the show as well. And they do know you went because they're your emergency contact. My mom would cry 
in my face and say, please tell me if you won. And I go, oh my gosh, I will not. (laughs) I don't think she's, she forgave me once she knows I won. So Scott, I had no idea. Thanks for that little peek behind the scenes. My pleasure. All right. We put this off long enough. Are you ready to talk about your books? I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And we'll talk about what you should read next. Let's do it. All right. Let's start with your favorites. What's the first book you love? My very favorite book has been standing strong in my favorite slot for a very long time. It is The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Tell me about it. I love this book. I love it for numerous reasons. I think the main reason I love it is the character Christopher. While he's not relatable to me um, directly, because for those who have not read this, it's not stated in the book, but there's this idea that he falls on the autism spectrum. And you receive that based on the way he interacts with others and the way he's conceptualizing the world around him. So it starts off with him trying to uh, solve the 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 problem of a murder of a dog in his neighborhood. And what it evolves into is this portrait of um, his upbringing and his family dynamics. And it's so touching to me because we're able to get a glimpse into his relationship with his mother, which is something that's very important in my life is my relationship with my mother. So I think that struck a chord. And I won't spoil the ending for readers, but there's certainly this very slow but satisfying build towards a climax where he goes out into the real world on this journey, all this experience that is new to him, he is fighting through to get to the end result of what he's trying to do. And that, I can only imagine the frustration, the fear that he's facing as he's going through all of these new experiences. It's information and sensitivity overload that he is pushing through because he wants so badly to reach this this goal and I think that's ultimately what resonates with me is that I will set a goal and I will push through whatever the obstacles are and I will try so hard to achieve it. I, I don't know. I think we were very fortunate as a society to have this book turned into a stage production as well. The Broadway show is just as mesmerizing and, and strong as the book. So you've seen it because I've read so much about it and I just can't quite imagine Oh my gosh, I was sitting in your seat before I saw it, and I was so lucky to see it twice. The way they can turn this novel into um, an actual book uh, for the stage is so fascinating because a lot of the novel is written from Christopher's point of view, the way he's thinking. And so for them to verbalize that through characters, yet keep the book centered to Christopher's story I cannot describe how wonderful that was for those playmakers to do that for us. And I appreciate that very much to the contribution of art. That's so good to hear because I've been curious from afar, but it hasn't been on the list of things that, oh my gosh, I need to see in person one day. But uh, that's persuasive. It won um, Best Play at the Tonys. And then Mm -hmm. the gentleman who played Christopher also won Best Actor. And if you read the reviews of him, he's able to encapsulate Christopher through physical choices. And you just think, yes, I know exactly what he's thinking and what he's facing based on the way he's standing or moving or interacting. It's great. Scott, what's another of your favorites? The next two, uh, I'm going to go in order of my favorites, but they are very much relatable. And maybe some readers will roll their eyes, hopefully not, (laughs) uh, because they are often compared. But the second book 
in my selection is All the Light We Cannot See. Mm-hmm. I was exposed to this by my best friend in Los Angeles during book club. And all I remember is when she mentioned it, I said, oh, I've heard that title. I think it won some award. <laughs> Who knew it was going to be the juggernaut that it was? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I love this story because... Um, once again, there's a wonderful young central character, uh, Marie Lore, is how I pronounce her name in my mind. I don't know if I'm about to start a theme here, but she also, or she is going blind when she's six and learns to also work through what some might see as a disability to still have a very strong and interesting life. She develops a very strong relationship with her father during uh, World War II. France. And the journey of this book is not only hers, but one of Werner, an eight-year-old German. So while we're learning about Marie Laure, or Loray, I guess, I'm terrible at names, but in my mind, they sound correct. <laughs> I'm not about to correct you. Well, that's the thing about reading is it, it's just in your head. Exactly. Oh, when I heard about Harry Potter characters, I thought Hermione was pronounced Hermone. And that was fine with me because that's the way I read it. I just remember how not knowing how to pronounce um, Bryony in the Ian McEwen atonement. It just, it made me crazy. <laughs> I, I take uh, comfort in that. The way I read it is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't about to question you. Uh, and so we have uh, eight-year-old Werner on the other half of the book and his journey into coming from an orphanage and learning that he has this uncanny ability to work with science and circuitry and how that skill actually gets him involved with the Nazi party. So you can see this very slow train wreck about to happen where she's um, opposing the Nazi party in some of the activities that she chooses to pursue as she gets older. He is siding with the Nazi party as he gets older, and their stories start to become woven together in this most climactic, oh my gosh, again, I don't want to spoil it for readers, he is about to take her down without knowing who she is. Your heart is already with both characters and you really want to just go in your chest and rip it out because that is a much more satisfying pain than what might happen <laughs> in the pages, I think. That's how you know you're invested. <laughs> exactly. And and for a 544-page book, um, normally I would say, oh, I don't have the time for that. But I have to say, I think I read 300 in a row. I was so mesmerized by this text. And once again, a satisfying ending. There is definitely the satisfaction with this journey that we took together made me feel like I'm changing my perspective on this. I like that. I like that too. What's your final favorite? All right. It's going to be The Nightingale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> once our book club read All the Light, mm-hmm. uh, we got so excited because all of us thought it was a dead ringer for the best book we've read. And we heard The Nightingale was very comparable, yet not. Uh So we thought, let's just do it. Let's jump right in. And so The Nightingale um, is a historical fiction by Kristen Hanna, which I know has been spoken about on this podcast before, also in France during World War II. But the difference here is that it's about uh, a relationship between sisters, um, a little bit connected to all the light in that one sister goes in one direction, which is distaste for what's going on in the war and what can she do to really combat those uh, negative forces while the other sister is on a different storyline trying to hold on with her tightest grasp some normalcy in her life bringing up her children living with nazis in her village just because they have taken up 
community there, but she's still holding strong, even though so, so many terrible things happen to her. And it's an interesting dual journey here as well, where you see them develop over time and really be affected by the war in different ways. The journey uh, for me in this book is stronger at the beginning of the war, the beginning of the Nazis taking over this small town in France, and the descriptions that Kristen Hanna uses to really set the tone for this gritty, becoming a depression era, I felt, small town in France, where Mm -hmm. to have a car was a luxury, to drive past all of these people migrating out of their hometowns because they wanted to, to get in front of the front lines and not be a part of this war. That really gripped me at the beginning, And then to have that dual storyline only to be woven back together at the end was very reminiscent of the reasons I loved All the Light and therefore loved this as well. Scott, what's a book you're not so crazy about? (sighs) White Teeth by Zadie Smith. I just, I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) Could you be more specific? I know. I knew you were going to ask me that. It is so bad for me that I can't summarize it in the way I just summarized uh, the books that I loved. I think what threw me off is that I love that it started simple enough and that we meet uh, Archie Jones. He's having a terrible go at life. His wife leaves him. We meet him when he is um, considering suicide. And then this unique thing happens. He's able to save himself. And he's like, I'm going to change my life. I am going to just explore different ways to pursue life. And I thought, great, yeah, a journey of life exploration. I love this, something I could get into. But then it really branches off into so many different characters that to me had no relatability whatsoever. And I didn't feel invested at all in his journey because the narration is taken away from Archie for many parts of the story. He meets some Jehovah's Witnesses and explores that religion, but not even to a depth that was interesting, I think, for his character. He meets all of these different women who really impact the way he interacts with women and others in the storyline, but I still didn't connect why they were impactful to him. I I guess I won't try to butcher the plot any further than I have, but all I can say is I think Zadie Smith's style of writing is not as straightforward as I like my literature to be. Perhaps there's a lot more in the undercurrent that my mind is not picking up because I read for enjoyment in commutes. <laughs> so I'm not sitting mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. digging into the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps it's on me, but I, I just, I'm not a fan. And I, as a result, will not read any more of her work. So this was her debut. So it sounds like you think it was the structure, because this is a scattered novel on purpose with the idea being that the medium is the message. And it sounds like you do deliberately push yourself, but if that's not what you like to read, then this kind of writing is never the kind of thing you're going to pick up on purpose and sit down on the couch because you've had a long day. (laughs) Agreed. I think that's okay. Okay. It's also got a satirical bent. Did that rub you the wrong way? Are you okay with that? Um, I think that was also, thanks for reminding me, that was also a piece that just didn't connect with me. Okay. So a little more straightforward Mm -hmm. than not and heartfelt isn't a bad thing. Agreed. And I I would say I tried again with some satire with Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Mm -hmm. Loved. I would say it's in the top 10 books for sure. Were you you in Seattle when you read that one? (laughs) I was, yes. Okay, good. (laughs) So that helped. But I thought that style of satire was very much more relatable and perhaps it's Mm -hmm. because it wasn't as scattered a plot. White Teeth was definitely darker. Bernadette was snarky, but not quite cynical. Mm, There you go. 
and snark is uh, i would say one attribute of my personality (laughs) (laughs) so maybe that's why (laughs) that will be very helpful going forward (laughs) what are you reading right now right now i'm at the tail end of boys in the boat uh-huh. And I picked that up because I have a feeling historical fiction is a new genre that I'm loving after having read Unbroken, All the Light, um, The Nightingale. I am enjoying it, but um, not to the extent of uh, the two favorites I just listed. It's just enjoyable. And then I just finished Lily and the Octopus, which is interesting. Yeah. I, uh-huh. have, have you read that? Oh, my gosh. I read that book right after my 12-year-old dog died. Oh, gosh. With a brain tumor. So it was either perfect timing or terrible timing. Because in the book, Lily is, is she a dachshund? Yes. And the octopus is what her owner calls her uh, her brain tumor that's taking over. Oh, it was like so delightful to read and also really broke my heart because of the timing. I can only imagine. I'm not a dog owner, but most of my friends are, and they're so devoted to their dogs. And to put myself in the shoes of this main character and to see his dog, the love of his life, deteriorate because of something that you cannot stop. No, I feel you. I was crying all the way through. And it's just so funny and whimsical. Like I was just thinking about this book the other night because I noticed it on my shelf and the cover is that beautiful shade of greenish kind of blue that I just really cannot resist buying in a bookstore. <laughs> the way the relationship between the the dog and the owner is portrayed is just so whimsical and a little off kilter that it's so memorable and fun. Sometimes I remember how the dog and the owner like to discuss the relative merits of the two Ryans <laughs> amongst themselves, Reynolds or Gosling. And whenever I see Ryan Reynolds or Ryan Gosling like in a in a trailer or on the cover in the checkout aisle at the grocery, I think like, oh, Lily and the octopus. Exactly. It's. Yep. I would agree with you. The whimsical nature sold me. And this might be interesting to you, the one chapter that became somewhat a fantasy novel when he was a pirate on a ship. and Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yes, and I could not stand that chapter. It was so funny. <laughs> I went, can we, can we get past this? I know why you're doing it, but I need to get mm-hmm. back to your whimsical mm-hmm. fun. That is good to know when we're picking books for you. <laughs> Scott, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? Anything you want more of? I think I alluded to this earlier. I just, I think I need some help. <laughs> I need some help <laughs> expanding my attention to other genres, other authors, other experiences. I understand literature doesn't have to be slam dunk. You sold me on this emotional journey. Therefore, it's the only reason I like this. I think I need to understand the journey itself is the reward. Mm -hmm. But I do want to stay somewhat in that realm because I read only about 24 books a year. And so I feel like because I only have so much time I spend reading, I want it to be worthwhile. I gotcha. Okay, so I'm thinking about some books that are mm, beyond upmarket for you, that are pretty literary. You know, it'll be like contenders for the big awards. Mm-hmm. Is that a place you want to go? I'm also thinking about books that might break your heart. Like, is that something that you're <laughs> cool with when you're pushing outside your typical genres? Or would you rather not? Oh, no. I'm actually fascinated by any of your recommendations, but I'll tell you if a book is about to break my heart, such as Lily and the Octopus, I will hole up in my, in my house. So don't worry. I'll cry with open eyes. (laughs) (laughs) You won't cry on the train. Well, I've done that before too. (laughs) It's very hard to hide that. (laughs) You told me that you used to read a lot of chiclet were your words. 
<laughs> is that something that you want to get away from? And there's a specific reason I'm asking. Uh, okay, here's <laughs> when I wrote into you and said that I, I do read Chicklet. It's because before book club, I knew that my solid go-to genre was anything about a girl who is like young, mid-20s, goes to New York, fights for her career, finds the love of her life, and that's the story. I just Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, I was like, that's that's what I like. Devil Wears Prada, Someday, Someday, Maybe. Like, yes, these are my solid go-tos. Mm-hmm. I'm not fearful of them. I would love to read more, but I feel like maybe I can graduate into something more hefty. But, you know, I'm up for anything. All right. So maybe we'll do like, well, I was going to say small, medium, and large, but that makes it sound like we're lining these up by merit. And they're not. They're just different. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have ideas to, for you. I'm excited. You want to dive in? I okay, do. let me let me start with the no-brainer, which I am sorry to say I feel really bad about because I feel like if you're looking for the kind of more sleeper hits that you wouldn't necessarily find if we weren't talking about them right now, you would probably hear about this one. But I really think you would really enjoy it. And I just need to make sure that it's one of your 24 books. Okay. Okay. And it's Kristen Hanna. It's the new Kristen Hanna. It's called <gasps> The Great Alone. Do you know anything about it? I have it on hold at the library. It's not yet available, but it's coming. Actually, as we speak, it is release date today. <gasps> oh my God. Okay. So that doesn't excited. mean that your library is going to have it like on the shelf right at this very second, but it's coming out today. Here's what I like about it for you. And let me just say, I personally did not love The Nightingale. Interesting. I- I've really liked her work in the past, but I read The Nightingale like during a string, not even on purpose, of World War II historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And there has been a lot of really good World War II historical fiction that's come out in the last few years. In the run of the books I read, it it was not the standout. And so I think had I read it in a different context, it would have been able to shine a little brighter. But that was my experience. Basically, what I'm trying to say is I'm not Nightingale fangirling all over you. I think on its own merits, this is such a good book. And it's a good book for you specifically. Mm -hmm. So what happens is there's this tight family unit. The story starts in Seattle. So I'd like that for you too. Mm -hmm. This little family was really, really happy before the husband went off to Vietnam. And when he came back, he wasn't the same. And this is 1974. So they knew that he was deeply troubled from his experiences in the war, but they weren't able to say, like, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. Let's get you some help. He did not get the help he needed. So he was suffering from horrible PTSD, dreams and disturbances and violence. And the family is not doing well because he can't function and he can't work. So when he finds out that he has inherited a homestead from one of his buddies that he served with in Vietnam in a remote region of Alaska, they think like, oh, this is our chance. We've been given land. We've been given a fresh start. Let's go. At first, it's very exciting. They're embarking on this grand adventure. I really love the scene where they arrive at the homestead in the middle of nowhere in Alaska and the mom is wearing like a peasant blouse and totally impractical shoes and because they're going to like take on the Alaskan frontier. The natives have a word for this. They're chichacos. They are super green and have no idea what they're doing. So at first it goes really well. Like they are living off the land and doing lots of physical labor and getting integrated into this um, really tight knit community. Um, with really strong personalities that are a lot of fun, especially the women. Like for you as a reader, they're just, the characters are great. And so is the characterization. But then it starts getting darker out. And as the days get shorter and shorter and shorter, the husband, his name is Ernst, his mental health 
gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm. That's the setup. So there's adventure, there's tragedy, there's really strong relationships in this tight-knit community. Um, the like setting is really, really cool. We're focused on the 13-year-old daughter when the story starts, Lenny, short for Lenora, who didn't want to go to Alaska and quickly realizes like, oh, this is where I belong. This is home. And she really comes into her own. But as her dad gets worse and worse and worse, the situation the family is in becomes more and more desperate. So what I like about this is this is not a short book. It's like 400 something pages. And I read it in one afternoon because I was so worried for these characters. Like I was in the story and I don't think it's just me. Hannah introduces you to them and it looks really great at first, but then it starts going dark pretty quickly. And it just makes you so tense on their behalf. You have to keep reading to find out if they're going to be okay. Something else I really liked about the story is that Hannah could have ended it like five different times before she actually got to the end, but she keeps pushing it and like taking our characters like further and further and further. And you like a story with a good ending. Mm -hmm. I think this one really delivers. I think she nails it. How does that sound? That sounds, you make it sound even better than I thought it was going to be. I'm excited. Well, I'm glad it's already on hold for the library. <laughs> that was the easy one. <laughs> Let me just say, I love the World War II novel, Everyone Brave is Forgiven. Is this one you're familiar with? I'm not. Okay. We've talked about this on the podcast before, so this doesn't really count. But <laughs> I like to think of this as the like snappier younger sister to All the Light We Cannot See. Okay. This story is also set in World War II. It's set in London, not in the like gorgeous um, Saint Malo or however you pronounce it, because I don't know either. Um <laughs> This is a story of four young, vibrant, warm, really witty and wisecracking friends in wartime England. Two men, two women. Cleve does not mess around. He wanted this to be a really realistic war novel, not in the sense that it's really graphic. I mean, we're not talking about like Saving Private Ryan or Dunkirk or anything, mm -hmm. but in the sense that he wanted you to feel uh, the weight and the uncertainty of wartime. I can't tell you how he does that because that would be to um, tell you what's coming next. It's so good. I'm excited. So basically I told you it was a World War II novel that was so good and a little bit snarky, <laughs> but perfect. maybe that's enough. It's perfect for me. Also, another one we've talked on the podcast before. Do you know this is how it always is? Uh, Lori Frankel. I have heard of it. I've not read it. Such a great family story. Really wonderful characters. So it's about lovely people facing something that we've read about in the news, but you can't maybe probably imagine living out in your own life or your own family. Mm -hmm. And it's set in Seattle. Oh, even better. Okay, you said that you've discovered this fondness for historical fiction. Mm -hmm. What do you know about White Houses by Amy Bloom? Is this the one about Eleanor Roosevelt? It totally is. I just heard this title last week. That's so funny. Go on. <laughs> okay, so this is the kind of novel that depending on how you as a reader feel about history, you will either be absolutely appalled or won't be able to read it fast enough. So... The backdrop here is many historians reading between the lines have wondered if there was more than a friendship between First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and her assistant, the journalist Lorena Hickok, who Roosevelt called Hick, um, even in well-reputed biography, you know, because like historians don't maybe like to uh, get all snoopy and assert things that aren't true mm -hmm. about characters of history, but even well-respected historians have gone, well, the evidence is very interesting here about, about this relationship. So, 
biographical historical novel from the point of view of Lorena Hickok telling the story of this relationship. It's called White Houses because Hick herself had a White House um, that she lived in, I think in New England, at the point where the women knew each other. And obviously there is the White House that Roosevelt lived in as First Lady. We're going back and forth in time um, where Hick is visiting Eleanor right after the death of FDR, which happened just before the end of World War II. So we're seeing the present day reunion, but then we're looking back through Hick's eyes at these women's childhoods. And Eleanor's was rough, but Hick's in rural South Dakota was horrible, uh, just really, really difficult. Um, she left home, um, deeply poor family and worked as a hired girl before she ran off to join the circus. I really had no idea that was point of the story, but that is real, oh, wow. but it tells the story of how they found each other and why each was so important to the other. If you don't want your authors to take liberties with histories, run. This is not the book for you. Um, but if you enjoy a good biographical novel, how, how does that sound to you? It actually feels like a slam dunk because it's rooted in history. Um, it's obviously two central characters that we're going to dive deep into. Their relationship is going to weave together. And I, I like that um, we're presented information and we can glean from it what we will. So that additional element is exciting. The pub date is February 13th. All right. I got to put it on my list. <laughs> okay. And Scott, when we talked, you said that you were frustrated by the lack of quality gay fiction. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by quality? Oh, I guess that might be a slight to some of the authors I've read before, but I... I, I wasn't even thinking about that. Okay. <laughs> what I meant was, um, what are you looking for? Um, well, I guess it's it's almost like reading a, like a chick lit for me, you know? <laughs> like, how about the, the 20-some-year-old guy who goes to New York at first career and finds <laughs> the love of his life? <laughs> I, I just, uh, I've read some LGBT fiction in the past, and it, it seems as though, whether it's the writers, the editors, publishers, I don't know where the, the barricade is, but the quality of the story is is never very high. It's flimsy, the characters are not well-developed, or there's this either A of coming out story, which I think is important for folks that are... Um, discovering that about themselves but once you're out it it seems to be slightly repetitive or there's this environment where being gay is 100 percent okay and i just sometimes while i would love that lifestyle <laughs> there's always you know being a gay person you know that you're still in the back of your mind always thinking okay just remember to protect yourself like if you go into this situation or you know you you can't you know kiss your boyfriend in this area of town so I think the writing goes either direction and there's never been one in the center, which seems a little bit finger on the pulse for today. When I asked a publisher once, how do you determine if a book you published is a success? They said, if people are still reading it in 10 years, hmm. a book that has staying power, not like Jane Eyre necessarily, because we're not even going to be around to know if the books published <laughs> this month are going to be read in 200 years. A book that gets readers for more than just the initial release marketing buzz, a book that people continue to read and talk about because it deserves it, mm -hmm. not because they saw an advertisement or it was in Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> so with that in mind, do you know What Belongs to You by Garth Greenwell? I do not. Okay. Here's why I like this for you, although I have reasons I, I'm tentative to. Let's start with the tentative. I have not read this myself because I'm afraid to. Mm. Uh, it was blurbed by Hanya Yanagihara, who wrote A Little Life. And I there are many things I can read 
without feeling like I might be too scarred as a human being just to keep going on. Just because of the, some of the, uh, the themes in that book, the physical and emotional torment some of her characters experience are really difficult to read for some people. So that, that's the kind of difficult I'm talking about. Okay. But I've been told by reader friends with great taste that what belongs to you is definitely in a similar vein. Like it's really, really good, really well done, really gorgeous writing, but that it's painful in similar ways. And also I don't have any reason to talk about this book, except I think it's good, but I used to walk to school with Garth Greenwell. So even though I haven't seen him in 20 years, just having that personal connection with someone writing about really difficult things, because much of this is drawing on his own personal experience. Mm. I'm not ready to go there, but you might be ready to. This is his debut novel. It's gotten all kinds of praise and critical reviews. I think this would meet your, well, I hope it meets your definition of um, gay quality fiction. It's definitely a literary novel. But if you find it to be maybe a little too focused on words instead of plot, it's only 200 pages. And it's constructed more like a series of short stories. Mm -hmm. You can keep moving forward scene by scene. You're never going to get into a 20-page description of like the way the light fell through the window. <laughs> I also like it for you because it's set in Bulgaria in the town of Sofia. The town itself is almost a character in the story. It's really vividly drawn. And I think as someone who likes to travel, especially to places a little off the beaten path, that element may be really interesting for you. Okay, how does that sound so far? That sounds exciting as well. Good job. <laughs> I have heard that sometimes on some pages, it's the beautiful language and not the plot that carries the story. Although that is not true on every page, but just in some sections. And that's something that makes me a little nervous for you. Mm -hmm. But this is the story of a, an American college professor who's an expat in Bulgaria. He's living there. He's teaching there. Interestingly, we never find out his name. Hmm. He develops a relationship with a male hustler whose name is Miko. And he is just obsessed with him. Um, he loves him, but Miko perhaps only wants the American professor for what he can do for him. Dependability, money, a place to stay. The two eventually go their own separate ways. Ooh, and it's worth saying that Miko also has a violent side that leaves our professor um, fearful of him at times as much as he loves him. What's also really interesting about this story is you see what's happening in the present day and you think, what is happening here? But then in the middle part of the book, there's this interlude where you go back in time and you find out um, the characters' roots, like what happened in their past that they need to figure out before they can move forward in the future. This is not an easy read. Um, there's a lot of pain and suffering, emotional and otherwise. But what Greenwell set out to do with this book, he really does. Like the book is exactly what it's trying to be. And it doesn't sound like it's exactly what you typically read. So this would be a stretch. But I think as someone who likes to push yourself, this would be a good direction to push in. I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I, I like that you said, we will get to learn their different perspectives as to why they're acting or experiencing life the way they are. And that is what really draws me into a story is deeper connection to the character and why that drives the plot forward. So I'm excited for that title. Thank you. I am very curious to hear what you think about all of these. <laughs> Scott, of these titles, what's jumping out at you? What do you think you'll read next? My fingers are itching to put them around the great alone. So I'm going to start with that. I'm so happy to hear it. I cannot wait to hear what you think. Yes, but um, I'm so happy that you said the other two because I think all three you listed are going to be um, quickly read 
by May this year. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. I had such a great time. Thank you. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Scott today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Scott and let him know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 122. That's 122. That's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Readers, if you like lighter, more joyful reads, I hope you'll relate to next week's guest, Rissy Lindbergh. Rissy is a loyal What Should I Read Next fan who has been listening to the show since the very first episode, but has never heard her favorites mentioned. Here she is chatting about what she looks for in a good bedtime read. When I listen to the show, I hear a lot of people talk about how they like to ugly cry. I think that was Jamie Golden who said that <laughs> a few weeks ago. I was like, oh, okay. I I don't know. I don't like to ugly cry. Also, I hear people talk about liking to go dark or liking books that haunt them for days. And that it's not really my style. I prefer books that are either instructive or more joyful. That when I read it, I can put it down, especially at night when I'm reading in bed, I can set it aside and say, ah, I feel good. I can go to sleep now and have pleasant dreams. Have you always known this about yourself or did it take years to figure out the pattern? Uh, No, I think I've always known this. Some of my early favorite books were Pride and Prejudice, read that one in high school. Also, Anne of Green Gables, loved it. And I just loved the joy, the spirit. I mean, I read a lot. I read pretty widely. But the books that I truly love, that follow me, that I reread, are the happier books. Tune in next week to hear what I end up recommending to Rissy. And if you haven't heard your reading personality represented on the show, consider filling out our guest submission form. That's at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash guest. Pop over there to get started. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.